As we press on in our series through the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, we had a preview of Father's Day of sorts last week uh, as we highlighted the importance of the parent's voice, the parent's instruction in the life of one who would grow up to be wise. And in the last section of Proverbs chapter 1, Solomon points to another voice that the son needs to hear and heed. In Proverbs 1.20, we are introduced to Lady Wisdom. Now, Lady Wisdom is not a literal lady. She's not a flesh-and-blood woman. Rather, Solomon is using a figure of speech, a literary device, personifying this attribute of God. Notice how Wisdom cries aloud. Hear how she raises her voice. She cries out and she speaks. The father of Proverbs is going to quote the words she says, and we'll consider those in just a bit. But first, consider why the author does this. God's wisdom is described in Scripture as manifold, a word meaning taking many shapes, being expressed in many varieties. God's wisdom and wise ways are also described as deep, unsearchable, inscrutable for us mere mortals. Yet it is God's wisdom that is offered to us in the Scriptures and in this particular book. How does the Lord deliver His wisdom to people? One way is found in this magnificent woman. Solomon personifies God's wisdom as a woman. If there's anything that will get a young man's attention, it's a wonderful woman. And Solomon more than hints that he wants his son to marry Lady Wisdom, metaphorically. This kind of female personification probably came to Solomon's mind as he simply recognized that the Hebrew word translated wisdom is grammatically feminine. Other cultures do something similar, perhaps most famously Greek philosophy, which when merged with a distorted form of Christian theology produced the Gnostic goddess Sophia. We'll see in a few weeks how Solomon does not deify wisdom as a separate entity from the only true God. In several of the teaching units contained in these first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, Lady Wisdom will stand in the background, but on three occasions she is depicted as speaking. And as much as the famous Proverbs 31 woman is describing an ideal, excellent, valiant wife in the flesh, it seems highly likely that that poem which concludes the book of Proverbs, should be viewed more as a reflection of Lady Wisdom herself. There may be no more misunderstood lady in all of Scripture. And the disconnect of that poem from its biblical context has certainly done damage to many Christian women. Biblical poetry is powerfully helpful when handled with care, but can be powerfully destructive when taken literally or out of context. As we meet Lady Wisdom in chapter 1, we need to hear what she has to say. She issues a loud warning, primarily addressing the simple people, the naive, the gullible, those who haven't traveled long in life, or rather those who haven't made much progress in the pursuit of wisdom. She speaks loudly and clearly, and Solomon wants his son and his readers to understand and heed what she's got to say. As helpful as a personification is, we should recognize that even Lady Wisdom is not the culmination of how God delivers His wisdom to His people. Ultimately, He must go beyond literary device, beyond figurative speech, and actually incarnate His wisdom. In recognizing the truth of Paul's words in Colossians 2-3, that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ We can see Lady Wisdom as a proper prophetic type of Jesus. And speaking of prophecy, Lady Wisdom sounds very much like a prophet, or I suppose prophetess is the proper title. In any case, she's speaking the word of the Lord, and we all need to heed her warning. Though she addresses the simple, even the wise ones among us can learn from her. So let's begin by looking at verses 20 to 23. Proverbs 1, verses 20 to 23. Solomon tells us about Lady Wisdom's public ministry. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. 
In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Notice her initiative. She's not waiting for students to enroll in her school. She's out there in the marketplace. She's recruiting. She's at the city gates where business was conducted, where judicial matters were settled. She's not cloistered away in the library. She's not hidden in some private, unknown location. She wants to be where the people are. She is where the action is happening. And her message is not some secret knowledge for some secret society. Biblical wisdom is no form of Gnosticism. Just like Jesus, she's going from town to town, announcing the truth and calling for people to respond. And she's certainly not quiet. The idea that Christian women are supposed to be quiet and timid like little church mice is a misunderstanding and distortion of biblical truth. Granted, this passage is not necessarily talking about distinctions between men and women. The personification of God's wisdom as a woman is not necessarily intended to speak to biblical womanhood per se. Rather, this point applies to all of God's people, male and female. The teaching of wisdom needs to be clear, direct, true, and at least on some occasions, appropriately loud. One commentator has characterized the speech of Lady Wisdom quite accurately. I'll quote him at length. Lady Wisdom is no gentle persuader. She shouts, pleads, scolds, reasons, threatens, warns, even laughs. Pulpit bashing and hellfire preaching if ever there were. All quite unladylike. And nowadays, also quite unfashionable, even frowned upon. But the good lady is fired by a great sense of urgency. She knows that her appeal is a critical moment of opportunity for the fools. And no one knows better that the fool parts easier with his money than his folly. The simple and the fools who will hear Lady Wisdom's voice are potentially hard of hearing. Sometimes the raising of one's voice is necessary. It certainly can get one's attention. And notice that she's crying out at the head of the noisy streets. There are a lot of other things going on that she has to compete with. Not only is there the ordinary hustle and bustle of life that can be so loud, but as we'll see in later chapters, there are other voices out there seeking to draw the attention of the simple. Notice in verse 22 that Lady Wisdom is very clearly addressing the simple people specifically. She refers to the scoffers and the fools as separate groups. But she's speaking directly to the simple ones. She starts with a question. How long? This question reverberates throughout the scriptures, oftentimes coming from the mouths of flustered prophets. Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Jeremiah, repeatedly, and Jesus himself. But her specific question echoes most closely the Lord himself. In Numbers 14.11, after the spies returned and reported on the unconquerability of the land of Canaan, we read these words. And Yahweh said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Lady Wisdom recognizes that the simple ones are not completely blank slates. Though their heads may be empty or open, as the Hebrew word for simple depicts, they have a bent, an inclination. She uses the term love. They love their simpleness. They don't want to change. They're just fine the way they are. Thank you very much. But Lady Wisdom offers something better. Though they haven't yet filled their heads with foolishness, Lady Wisdom recognizes that human beings are naturally turned toward and attracted to foolishness rather than wisdom. Even if they haven't made their choice yet, even if they haven't taken a single step in a particular direction, she knows which way they are inclined. Thus she calls on them to turn in verse 23. 
But before she issues that call, she illustrates for the simple ones that their attitude is no different than the scoffers and the fools. If you've looked through a fool's handbook, the booklet I've provided for you, there are a few more copies out there in the atrium, then you might recall that the scoffer is at the bottom of the fool's decline. The scoffer is one who doesn't merely refuse to listen to God's wisdom. The scoffer is the one who actively opposes and argues against God's wisdom. The scoffer has rejected all external authorities and has become an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of wisdom, an enemy of truth. And Lady Wisdom says that the scoffer enjoys it. Intriguingly, the Hebrew word is the normal word for coveting. The scoffer covets scoffing. We're going to see Lady Wisdom turn that coveting into an ironic judgment in just a minute. Not only do the scoffers covet and enjoy their scoffing, but the fools hate knowledge. This is the most common word for fool in Proverbs, and this is the next step for the simple person if he refuses to listen to Lady Wisdom. But the fool doesn't like to listen. He's already moving toward the posture of becoming a know-it-all. He's certainly not eager to seek advice, and thus he tends to make a lot of bad decisions. Rather than recognize his folly and start seeking advice, when people try to help him, he bristles and thinks that he knows better. Nevertheless, there's hope for this fool. He can heed Lady Wisdom's call and turn away from his stubbornness. But here, Lady Wisdom mentions him to warn the simple ones. The simple ones might love their simpleness, might love the lack of effort that they put into living, but eventually they're going to have to make some hard decisions. And if they don't listen to Lady Wisdom, they will not only love their simpleness, but they will become the fool who hates knowledge and rejects it when it is offered. The offer of turning in verse 23 is directed only to the simple ones, however. Right now, she's talking to the simple ones, not to the fools, and certainly not to the scoffers. She gives them a promise. Look again at verse 23. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Notice that the simple ones are not innocent or sinless. In their naivete, in their lack of experience, they are still responsible. They still must turn. They still must repent, for that is what the call to turn means in the Old Testament. The command to turn is the most common way the prophets called God's people to repent. Now, it's important to notice the order here. The turning must happen before the simple ones receive the words of Lady Wisdom. The simple ones must heed this initial call, described as a reproof, a rebuke, a word of chastisement and correction. They must turn away from the road that they haven't actually stepped onto yet, and they must turn toward the road where Lady Wisdom is standing. They must respond to this initial call, and then they will enroll in Lady Wisdom's school. Then they can begin to receive her instruction and her wisdom. Now, the way she's worded the promise here may catch your attention because it sounds very similar to the promise of the new covenant, such as we find in Ezekiel and Joel. However, the Hebrew is quite different, and our English Bibles are probably right to translate this with a lowercase s. The poetic parallel also indicates that she's speaking of her words. Thus, the Hebrew ruach may very well simply depict the breath of her mouth. Thus, Lady Wisdom is offering to teach the simple ones everything she knows. She's promising that she will exhaust her breath on them, revealing to them all of her words, everything she's got to say about life in this world. Just as Jesus went around preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so Lady Wisdom calls on everyone everywhere to repent so that they might receive the words that lead to eternal life. But in the next verses, we find out what happens when the simple ones don't listen, don't heed, don't turn, don't repent. In verses 24 to 28, we hear Lady Wisdom explain the danger of rejecting her rebuke. This is the heart of her message. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one is heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, 
I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah both explained the exile before it happened in similar terms to verse 24. Both sides of wisdom are in view here. Lady Wisdom called out, inviting them to learn from her, but they refused to listen. Lady Wisdom offered her perfect counsel, but they've ignored it. Those are the positive sides of wisdom. She also stretched out her hand, meaning that she stretched out her hand to discipline them, but they paid no attention. And finally, she offered rebuke or reproof, but they weren't having it. Because of their rejection, verses 26 to 28 will unfold. There will come a day for every fool when disaster strikes. Something terrible will happen. And on that day, even the fool will want wise help. Lady Wisdom will laugh. Recall how the scoffer covets scoffing? Well, on the day the scoffer suffers, on the day the scoffer might look up begging for help, On that day, Lady Wisdom will scoff at the scoffer. This sounds so unlike God. When the wicked suffer but cry out for mercy and for help, won't our God have compassion? King David, Solomon's father, recognized the Lord's justice in his divine laughter at the wicked. Consider Psalm 37, 12 and 13. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. In the face of the nations plotting and scheming against the Lord and his Messiah, David prophetically sang in Psalm 2-4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, all of these are poetic references. The point being expressed is that God and Lady Wisdom, will not intervene to stop the suffering that fools bring upon themselves. Not only is this poetry, but this is also a warning. Does God intervene in the lives of foolish and wicked people to alleviate their suffering brought on by their sin and their wickedness and their foolishness? Yes, He does, sometimes. He has the freedom to extend His mercy to whomever He wills. But the warning stands. The foolish person who rejects God's wisdom has no right to expect God's intervention. The sinner who rejects God's word has no right to expect God's rescue. She compares the trouble that will inevitably come to a terrible storm. In fact, the Hebrew word translated storm is shoah, which modern Hebrew uses to refer to the holocaust. That's the kind of terror and storm and whirlwind that Lady Wisdom warns about. Rejecting God's wisdom leads to destruction, devastation, and death. Jesus himself used similar imagery at the conclusion of the Kingdom Life Discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew seven twenty six to 27 Notice how similar Jesus sounds to Lady Wisdom. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Not heeding Jesus' teaching is the same as rejecting Lady Wisdom's instruction because Lady Wisdom's instruction is summed up and brought to its climactic fulfillment in Jesus' teaching. The same doom, eternal destruction, awaits those who reject Jesus' teaching. The point is made very clear in Proverbs 1.28. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Notice a couple of things. First, Lady Wisdom has been addressing the simple ones directly in this passage. The word you has been prominent, but now she refers to they. I think she's implying that if the simple ones refuse to listen to Lady Wisdom, the simple ones will become 
fools, and even scoffers. You will become they before disaster strikes. And on that day of terror, it will be too late to get wisdom. She even depicts them as desperately seeking wisdom, hoping to avoid the disaster or be rescued from it, but she will be nowhere to be found. This, too, echoes the language of God Himself through the prophets. The prophets had warned God's people emphatically and repeatedly of God's coming to judge, and they had faithfully called the people to repent from their wickedness and idolatry and called them to return to serving and worshiping the Lord. But the people had rejected the prophet's words. Thus, God was going to stop sending them messages. The prophet Amos warned the people that there would come a day when they were in exile under the judgment of God, and they would want to hear from God, but He won't speak to them. We read in Amos 8, 11, and 12, Behold, the days are coming, declares Lord Yahweh, when I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of Yahweh. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of Yahweh, but they shall not find it. Jesus, likewise, echoes these words to the Pharisees of his day. In John seven thirty three and 34, after the Pharisees hear the people in the crowds wondering whether Jesus might be the Messiah, they decide to get the chief priest to send soldiers to arrest Jesus in the temple. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, it's chief priests who will ensure that Jesus is executed. So when Jesus returns to his Father in heaven, they won't be looking for Jesus anymore. But they will go on looking for the Messiah. The Jewish leaders will continue seeking the Messiah on earth, and many of them will throw in their lot with violent, zealot, messianic pretenders who will become catalysts for the Romans to come in and destroy the temple. But they won't find the real Messiah because he will be seated at the right hand of God in heaven, which is exactly where Jesus told them he would be. Notice also that they can't come where he will be. That is, Jesus tells these Jewish leaders that they can't go to heaven. Just a bit later, Jesus tells them why they can't go to heaven. In John 8, 21, Jesus repeats himself. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. They don't understand what he means. At this point, the Jewish leaders haven't set things in motion that will result in Jesus' death. So they wonder, is he saying he's going to commit suicide? They are badly misunderstanding what he is saying and who he is. But Jesus knows exactly who they are, and he tells them their problem. Why can't they go to heaven? Why are they going to die in their sin? In John 8, 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. This prompts them to ask directly, Who are you? He then explains that He is the heaven-sent Messiah, the one sent from the Father. And He even announces that they, these Jewish leaders who are interrogating Him here and who are going to die in their sins, they are going to lift up the Son of Man. They will not go to heaven because they will not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. After they have killed him, when he rises from the dead, they will know that he really was the Messiah. But in their hard-heartedness, they will suppress that truth in their unrighteousness and go on looking for some other Savior. The Jewish leaders are depicted as scoffers, who, as Lady Wisdom says, covet scoffing. They are fools who hate knowledge. They look for God's wisdom everywhere but in the man who embodies it perfectly. The man staring them in the face. The man indicting them as sinners. When their judgment comes in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, they will cry out for wisdom. They will cry out for God's help, but he will not answer. In the words of the prophet Micah, Then they will cry to Yahweh, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Like Micah, 
And like Jesus, Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 1 elaborates on the judgment of those who don't listen to God's word and God's wisdom. She's already indicated that it is because she's freely offered wisdom and they rejected it in all of its forms. Now in verses 29 to 31, she speaks of the fruit fools will eat, elaborating on the reasons for the judgment. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of Yahweh, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. Lady Wisdom varies her verbiage a bit here. She brings up the fear of Yahweh, which the father had insisted to his son is the beginning of knowledge. This is what one writer calls the chief theological accusation. It's the main reason for the consequences being described. Those who reject Lady Wisdom's summons are making a choice. They are choosing to abandon even the prerequisite for true knowledge and wisdom in this world. They are fully responsible for their choice. So what's the outcome for those who reject God's wisdom? Verse 31 begins with the word, therefore. And the way Lady Wisdom describes the consequences of their choices insists that they are reaping what they have sown. The phrase, they shall eat the fruit of their way, in this context, where wisdom is what was being offered, surely pushes us back to the beginning of the Bible, where eating fruit was the culmination of a turn away from God that resulted in the condemnation of humanity, the brokenness of the whole world, and the utter meaninglessness of life lived under the sun. The only place outside of Proverbs where this exact Hebrew phrase for eating fruit appears is three times in Genesis 3. As we noted a couple of weeks ago, the fall of humanity was not merely a fall into sin. It was also a fall into foolishness. Adam and Eve were forbidden from eating from only one tree out of all the fruit-bearing trees God had planted in the Garden of Eden. That one tree had a name the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or the knowing good and evil tree. The prohibition came with a warning. If they ate fruit from that one tree, they would die. No fruit from any other tree, apparently, would have resulted in their death. Just this one. Other than that, the Lord didn't give Adam or Eve any further explanation as to what the tree's purpose was. But... From Adam and Eve's vantage point, it had something to do with wisdom. Note Genesis 3, 6 again. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, the first two parts of that description I can kind of relate to. I've looked at a fruit tree with my own eyeballs and concluded, you know, that tree seems healthy, the fruit's the right color, don't see any bad spots, seems like this would be good for food. It's kind of a pretty tree. I can see that. I have a memory of a big, huge pear tree in my great-grandparents' backyard that I would eat from every summer visiting them, and it produced these excellent pears. And so I could see with my own eyes and conclude that it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. But I can't really relate to that third part. I've never looked at a tree and concluded, I think eating fruit from that tree will make me wise. How did Eve get that? Isn't it because of what the serpent said to her about the tree? Look at verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent here directly contradicts what God had said about eating the tree's fruit. And then he added some information on a topic that God did not say anything about. God had told Adam, back in Genesis 2.17, In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The serpent said, you will not surely die, directly negating God's words. Then the serpent made a claim about God's knowledge. God knows, the serpent began. Now from Proverbs 1.7, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
So if you don't fear the Lord, if you're not thrilled by the fact that He is God and you are not, if you don't have a right relationship with the Lord, you're not actually qualified to speak about true knowledge, about God's knowledge. Does the serpent fear the Lord? I dare say he does not, at least not in the way Proverbs speaks about fearing the Lord. Thus, the serpent's claim to know what God knows is absolutely false, even though some of it does, in fact, kind of come true in a certain sense, kind of, sort of. It's on the basis of the serpent's last statement, his promise that you will be like God, knowing good and evil, that Eve concludes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. By the way, the Hebrew word translated desired there is the word for coveting. Eve believed that the tree was to be coveted for its power to grant wisdom. Based on the serpent's lie, Eve believed that eating from this one tree would give her God's wisdom so that she might know good and evil. But in truth, she is already knowing good and evil before she takes a bite. She's already acting like God here. She's decided for herself, determined for herself what is good and what is evil. She has decided that eating from this tree is good, even though God has said that it would lead to their death, which probably should imply that eating from this tree is evil. Eve's deceived autonomy and Adam's undeceived autonomy constitute the fall of humanity before they ever took a bite of fruit from that one tree. While Eve was deceived by the serpent, Adam apparently was not deceived. He didn't believe the lie of the serpent, but he ate the fruit anyway. Did he just want to please his wife? Or, though not believing the lie of the serpent, did he himself question the truthfulness of God's word? In any case, humanity fell headlong into rebellion and sin and guilt and foolishness. Or, we could say, as Lady Wisdom does, they ate the fruit of their way. Adam and Eve wanted their way, not God's way. Eve believed the serpent. Adam obeyed his wife with unclear motives. Lady Wisdom warns all of us that rejecting God's wisdom, ignoring God's word, will lead us to eat the fruit of our own way. The the problem is that whenever our way is not God's way, to paraphrase Shakespeare's King Lear, that way, death lies. Lady Wisdom isn't playing around. Fools, those who ignore, despise, and reject God's wisdom will be glutted filled to overflowing with their own devices, schemes, and plots. She's echoing the father from the previous passage, who described to his son the way sinners lie in wait for their own blood, set in ambush for their own lives. They have sown scoffing toward God's word. They will reap scoffing from God himself. They refuse to listen to God's word. God will refuse to listen to their cries when they experience the consequences of their foolish actions. In verses 32 to 33, Lady Wisdom doesn't pull any punches. She indicates that responding to her words is a life or death matter. And we should probably recognize an ultimate eternal life or eternal death matter. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure, and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Lady Wisdom had called out to simple people and encouraged them to turn at my reproof in verse 23. Here, she depicts what happens when they turn away. Rather than turning toward her to listen and learn more, they turn away from her and refuse to listen. This will lead to death. This picture reminds us that there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus and the wisdom of God. Simple ones may love being simple and may choose to remain being simple, which would mean refusing to choose to listen to either wisdom or folly. Here they are depicted as refusing to take one step onto the path that leads to learning from Lady Wisdom. But they're also not described as stepping onto the other path that leads to folly. This is to make no choice. 
the result is the same, destruction. There is no true neutrality in this world. You are either an adopted child of God or you are a child of the devil. You are either counted righteous by faith or you are utterly wicked. The simple ones are not innocent. They too need to repent. Lady Wisdom then highlights the complacency of fools. The King James Version has the word prosperity instead of complacency. The word has to do with ease or calm, but it often carries the connotation of a false security, a feeling of ease when there really isn't ease. Commentator Bruce Waltke summarizes places where the word takes on this negative connotation helpfully. He writes, Feeling secure prompted Jehoiakim to disobey God's prophetic word, Jeremiah 22. Antiochus Epiphanes' enemies to arm themselves against him, Daniel 8, Daniel 11, and Sodom to do detestable things, Ezekiel 16, 49. So the complacency of fools, due to their false feelings of security, causes them to fail to take precautions against the inevitable judgment bound up in their folly, and so it will destroy them. But Lady Wisdom's warning ends on a hopeful note in verse 33. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Whoever listens, that holds out hope for everyone, even the scoffer. The words of Lady Wisdom are a reflection of God's wisdom. And the Apostle Paul equates Christ with the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 1.24. This then is an encouragement for us to listen to Jesus. We return to Jesus' words closing out the kingdom life discourse in Matthew 7, 24 and 25. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The same calamities, the same disasters, the same evils befall followers of Jesus in this fallen, broken world. There is no promise here that the rains won't come. Instead, the promise to those who listen to Lady Wisdom, to those who listen to Jesus, is that we will dwell secure. I really love this Hebrew word. The verbal form of this is the normal word in the Old Testament translated trust, as in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. The key to safety in the storms of life is trusting the Lord and heeding His words. As so often, trust and obey summarizes the point so very well. The Hebrew verb precisely refers to finding your security in something or someone. Trust To trust the Lord is to find your security in Him. To trust the Lord is to believe that He keeps you safe. To trust the Lord is to recognize that He and He alone can, can and does hold you secure through all of life's challenges. The promise of Proverbs 1.33 is for every Christian. And I know we've been warned about the danger of treating Proverbs as pre- precious particular promises. But this one has repeated support elsewhere in Scripture. Lady Wisdom has worded this quite precisely, even if poetically. Like Jesus, she makes no promise that wise people will never face disaster. Rather, she promises that we will dwell secure. Twice, the prophet Jeremiah uses this phrase in connection with the new covenant and the coming of the Messiah. For example, in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, the prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. Jesus is the branch He has come and established His heavenly kingdom on earth. 
as we learn from the Gospel of Matthew, embodying God's wisdom and dealing wisely, establishing justice and righteousness through His Word and through His cross. Notice how he parallels the promise that Judah shall be saved and Israel will dwell securely. To be saved is to dwell securely. In other words, those whom Jesus saves, He keeps safe. If you are in Christ, you are safe eternally. But we don't often feel safe, do we? We often feel threatened, in danger, whether from our own sin, from persecution, or from the devil himself. The truth remains. We are safe. How do we grow in feeling safe? Proverbs has the answer. Listen to the words of wisdom. Listen to the words of Jesus. But, as James so wisely instructs, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The command to listen implies obedience, as does the command to trust and the command to believe. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. To be happy in Jesus is to dwell secure and be at ease without dread of disaster. Again, I love the precision of Lady Wisdom's words here. She says we can live without dread of disaster, not without disaster itself. Now, the Hebrew word translated disaster is important and rich, It's one of the normal words for evil. That evil can take lots of forms, both in the categories of what we might call moral evil and natural evil. Do you find yourself afraid of moral evil? The harm sinners can bring to your life. If you travel to a big city and you find yourself walking in unfamiliar territory as the sun is setting, you might reasonably become a bit fearful. Or you might fear the damage your sinful spouse can unleash in your life. Or you might fear the damage your sinful self can unleash in your life. How do we live with security and confidence when all those kinds of fears are possible? Do you find yourself afraid of natural evil, the harm that can come to your life as a result of disease or weather or human carelessness? Does the fear of a cancer diagnosis dominate your thinking? Are you trapped at home, refusing to travel because you're afraid the car will flip over, or the plane will crash, or the train will derail? Do you live in dread of a tornado destroying your home, or a blizzard freezing you in your car? How do we live with security and confidence when all of those kinds of fears are possible too? Ideally and truly, the presence of someone powerful enough to protect you from all of those dangers, should alleviate our fears. I'm reminded of Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Did you notice that the presence of the shepherd doesn't take away the evil? His rod and his staff don't dispel the darkness. Rather, they bring us comfort while we walk through it. I understand fear. I know it well. What does Jesus expect from us here? He has promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. Well, that's one of his words, isn't it? I suppose he expects us to listen to it. That is, Jesus intends for us to believe, to trust Him, and to keep walking through the valley. Lady Wisdom insists that the key to getting past our fears is to listen to her words. In other words, we must listen to God's words. We must listen to the voice of our shepherd. And as we do so, as we seek to put those words into practice, being doers and not hearers only, our dread of disaster our fear of evil can fade into the background. 
God's words in Scripture provide us with all we need to protect us from being overwhelmed by this kind of fear. This, by the way, is why we practice biblical counseling. The words of God in Scripture address us so that we might properly understand and successfully endure every form of evil that we might face in this world. The Scriptures are sufficient to enable the child of God to walk faithfully with the Lord, come what may. Biblical counselors simply try to help counselees listen to God's Word more consistently and put it into practice more effectively. Paul tells us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Lady Wisdom has told us that listening to her words will enable us to dwell secure. Ultimately, listening to Jesus' words, recognizing that all Scripture is ultimately to be considered as Jesus' words, not just the red letters. Listening to Jesus' words is the key to dwelling secure for eternity. Thus, on one occasion, the disciples recognized that Jesus had the words of eternal life. In John 6, Jesus had said some very difficult words, words that many refused to listen to anymore, words that resulted in many who had been following him to turn away from him, showing themselves to be fools who despise wisdom and discipline, showing themselves to be on the way to destruction. Noticing how many were leaving, Jesus asks his 12 apostles whether they'd like to leave as well. In John 6, 68 and 69, we read, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus' words define eternal life. In John 17, 3, we hear Jesus say to his Father, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. True life, life that never ends, life that extends happily beyond death and goes on forever, is all about knowing God and knowing Jesus. You can't know God if you don't know Jesus. This knowledge is not primarily an intellectual thing. It includes understanding who God is, but it also includes aligning your choices in such a way that you acknowledge the only true God. And it also includes a real intimacy that is experienced as all of life is shared between God and us. Thus, knowing God, knowing Jesus, having eternal life includes trusting Jesus Christ as the one God has sent to save sinners. And it includes obeying Him, following Him wherever He leads. It is knowing personally the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Being in a personal relationship with this God, being in a personal relationship with Jesus, necessarily changes you. And it necessarily lasts forever. Because God lives forever, and he will not allow those who know him to cease experiencing life with him. Jesus' words produce eternal life. In John 6, 63, Jesus had said, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In most of our Bible translations, spirit starts with a lowercase s there, but this could very well be a reference to the Holy Spirit. And we could see that if it were capitalized, as it is in the 2011 edition of the NIV. And most of our English versions also obscure one other thing that's clear in Greek. Spirit and life are two different things. The King James Version clarifies correctly, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. This makes it clear that Jesus is saying two distinct and important things about his words. First, his words are spirit, with a capital S. Probably that means that his words are given by the spirit. They have their source in the Holy Spirit. Secondly, his words are life. That is, Jesus' words produce life result in life. Back in John 5, 24, Jesus had said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him, believes believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The powerful words of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, give life to the dead. Jesus' death, which his words announce and explain, procures eternal life. 
Some of the hard words Jesus had said that drove many of his followers away in John 6 include the words recorded in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is living bread. He lived a completely human life. When he gave his flesh, he gave his life. He allowed his body to be broken and destroyed, killed on a cross. And everyone who eats this living bread is how he metaphorically describes everyone who believes that he sacrificed his life to pay for their sins. And everyone who does that will live forever, will have eternal life. In verse 58, he says it like this, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he says very plainly in verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. Lady Wisdom's words promise life to those who listen to her. And as we see how she and her words point to Jesus, we can see how the Spirit-inspired words of the book of Proverbs in the context of the whole Bible proclaim the gospel to us. Thus, to come to Lady Wisdom is to come to Jesus. To receive her word is to receive his word. The life she offers is the eternal life that Jesus has defined, produced, and procured for us. Don't be like the simple fools or the scoffers who reject Lady Wisdom's call. Don't be like the Jewish leaders who rejected Jesus' words. He chastised them in a way parallel to Lady Wisdom's warning in John 5.40. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the hard words in Scripture. Warning passages like this are given to us to ensure that we stay on the right path. So help us who believe in you, help us who know you, help us who have eternal life heed the warning and keep walking on the path. No matter what storms may come, no matter what darkness we must walk through, help us to keep walking hand in hand with our Savior, trusting Him for the life that He's given to us, trusting his great words, his secure promises, that no one and nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Help us to take great comfort for that. And anyone hearing these words who doesn't know Jesus, who hasn't started walking down that path, I pray that you would open their heart to receive these words with welcome and trust. Thank you for the ways that you work to give life. Your ways are so much higher than ours, and your power is beyond our measurement. There is nothing too hard for you, not even the salvation of a sinner. And so we pray that you would be at work to bring us home all the way. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the promises that you've given us that ensure that we're going to make it to the finish line. Help us to trust you for every step of the way. And help us to pursue obedience to you, no matter what you tell us to do, no matter what cost to us. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.